Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. All right, so today's episode is a little bit different because usually the people whom I feature on this show tend to be alive. This person, Gordon Alport, is unfortunately not. Uh, but I did a really deep dive into Gordon Alpert and his context, the ideas that were surrounding him, the ideas that he created, and I find him one of the most inspirational figures in all of 20th century psychology. He's definitely one of the most influential. He uh, created the subfields of social psychology, particularly intergroup psychology, um, though I would argue social psychology more general more generally, and uh, personality psychology. And if you are a psychologist, we're familiar with the Journal of uh, Personality and Social Psychology. That is why those two things are thrown together in what is now in the 21st century a sort of disparate manner. At any rate, he is one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century. I found so much compelling and just resonant about his experience Everything from uh, how much he despised graduate school to, uh, you know, going off to Istanbul after graduating uh, to, you know, just his search to try and connect what was good about psychology scientifically with what psychology could endeavor to be humanistically, capturing a broader conception of what it means to have a mind to be a person. And so at any rate, this was a lar- part of a larger project that I had intended about the history of um, what was called the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, which was founded in 1946 and intended to be this sort of mega department where psychology and sociology and anthropology and all this, uh, all, all of these behavioral science disciplines were, were brought together uh, to create a sort of grand unified theory of human behavior. And so uh, if you're interested in that, that sort of thing, uh, definitely listen to this Gordon Alpert episode, and I will be releasing a lot of the content that I did sort of create for that, the, uh, the sort of larger social relations project. I'll be releasing that through my Substack, which is where this Gordon Alpert essay initially came out through. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. So if you like this particular biographical sketch of Gordon Alpert, um, then please do check that out. I really appreciate it. Uh, A lot of this stuff are are things that I find super cool and really compelling. And if you want to find uh, find out more about it, that's where you can do it. Uh, So like I said, this is not necessarily an interview per se. This is a deep dive biographical sketch of uh, the life and times and work of Gordon Alpert and what was going on in psychology and society while he was doing his formative work. So without any further ado, here is kind of Gordon Alpert. Born in Montezuma, Indiana in 1897, Gordon Alpert was not a New Englander. He was not bred into the Harvard tradition, nor was he uniformly smitten with it. But by the end of his career, he would have spent the better part of five decades on the Harvard campus. Nonetheless, he was brought up with all the intensity of an elite puritanical New England family. His family were devout Methodists. What children need is proper teaching and instructing, not beatings. Gordon's father, John Alport, once said. 
It was an insight that came only after conducting an accomplished program of beatings on his four sons. Gordon's mother, Nellie Alpert, was a keen observer of trends, both religious and secular. She could recite long passages of scripture from memory. She also read William James and Edward Griggs. In a personal notebook, she once observed, this age is one of personality. She was speaking of the age her son, Gordon, would grow up in. The American public was undergoing a shift from discourse about character to one about personality. Character was a concept of the 19th century. Emerson defined it as moral order seen through the medium of individual nature. Personality, likewise, was a concept that located the center of gravity of a person's disposition, but it did so without the moral baggage of character. Character was something found in storybook heroes and community leaders. The urbane and morally flexible socialites of the early 20th century had no need for character. They had personality. Gordon Alpert entered Harvard in 1915. His brother, Floyd, had already attended, earning his bachelor's degree in psychology two years before Gordon's arrival. Though Floyd had already established himself at Harvard, the transition wasn't a smooth one for Gordon. In his first semester, Gordon earned an array of D's and C's, but he was industrious. He planned his work time out in half-hour increments, sticking to an efficiently regimented schedule. In 1919, Floyd earned his PhD. His dissertation was on the effect of group upon individual and mental processes. Floyd was invited to stay on at Harvard as an instructor. The following year, he was made an editor at the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. Gordon took his degree in 1919 in philosophy and economics. Then he got as far away from Harvard as he could. He ended up at Robert College in Constantinople. His official post was as a missionary. It was a title that had more to do with name than zeal. Mostly his duties consisted in teaching English, which, per long-stranding tradition, is a well-understood code for drinking with one's friends and exploring the foreign locale. Floyd didn't support Gordon's trip to the Ottoman Empire, and almost as soon as he had touched down encouraged him to return to the United States. Floyd ensured him that a scholarship could be secured. Accommodation wouldn't be an issue. Gordon could stay at his place. Gordon equivocated over returning to the U.S. He liked Robert College in Constantinople. It was an ancient and beguiling city, full of sensuous beauty and spiritual depth. His decision was between professional development and personal wanderlust. Professional development won out, and he returned to Harvard after only a year in Constantinople. He traveled back to Cambridge by way of Vienna, where his brother, Fayette, was stationed for the U.S. Trade Commission. Gordon was curious about the frantic worship surrounding the ideas of a notable Viennese scholar, Sigmund Freud, and attempted to arrange a meeting. With all the callow forwardness characteristic of age 22, he sent the eminent analyst a note. He later recalled Freud's response, a kind reply in his own handwriting, inviting me to come to his office at a certain time. Gordon visited Freud at his home, 19 Burgasse, on July 28, 1920. Freud welcomed Gordon into his office, graciously and in English. Upon sitting down, Freud asked him what he would like to discuss. It was, evidently, the first occasion on which Gordon had given the question any thought. The two men sat silently for a moment, Freud waiting for Gordon to provide a reason for his visit, and Gordon waiting for one to occur to him. Gordon fumbled around for something interesting to say. He alighted on an observation he'd made on the tram ride over. He'd seen a little boy with a dirt phobia, who had complained to his mother over and over again, I don't want to sit there. Don't let that dirty man sit beside me. Gordon felt that this phobia stood in intriguing juxtaposition to his mother's dominant and purposive look as a well-starched housefrau. 
Gordon retailed this anecdote as a kind of psychoanalytic fodder in hopes of watching the great Professor Freud in action. Freud listened intently to the story, and upon receipt of the full briefing, searched Gordon with his eyes for a quiet moment. Intoning gently, Freud leaned forward and asked, And was that little boy you? Alpert did his best to convey that the little boy had, in fact, been a little boy. Trying a different conversational tact, he informed Freud of his plans to return to Harvard. He asked if there were any American analysts with whom he should consult. No, was the thrust of Freud's answer. It rather alarmed Alpert to hear, as he later recalled, that Freud failed to see why I should waste time at Harvard when no adequate representative of his school was present. Nevertheless, Alpert left the meeting neither especially daunted nor inspired. He didn't make note of Freud's analyst of the boy in his journal, only telling the story many years later. But the encounter had symbolic significance. Alpert would later develop a personality psychology based on the most profound elements of Freud's insights, while leaving out his psychoanalytic excesses. Alpert's encounter with Freud put those excesses on display. Graduate school was not a time of inspiration for Alpert. He kept a detailed journal of his experience. An early entry reads, Science, science, science! I feel myself valiantly swimming the whirlpool, competing, repressing, stealing the march, stretching my talents, losing my romance, and mourning sadly. And a later one, Must I go on with the necessary sham of graduate school? Is it necessary? I can do it putting on intellectuality and pseudo-intellectuality, and finally I can attain the goal, but what will become of the true spark of my inner nature? The most important figure in Gordon's graduate school career was his brother Floyd. Harvard's psychology program was in a period of decline. William James had died in 1910, and the department's identity had gone with him. Floyd Alpert was one of the instructors hired in the years after James's death. He was also the one who first suggested to Gordon that he work on personality. For his own research, Floyd was taken with a rising star in the field, John Watson, who sought to remake psychology in the image of biology. James's psychology had been a philosophical one. It had piqued a great deal of interest, but it had not inspired any particular agenda of experimental inquiry. The school of thought called behaviorism, of which Watson was champion and Floyd a disciple, had an idea about what the agenda should be. But it was not an idea that Gordon was sympathetic to. It failed to ignite the true spark of his inner nature. Another figure at Harvard at the time was the physiological psychologist Edward Titchener, a student of Willem Wundt, who was the kingpin of a clique within Harvard psychology circles. Alpert presented his nascent work on personality, arguing that it consisted of a bundle of definable traits to a room of rowdy, cigar-smoking Titchener devotees. The talk incited the group to produce one of the greatest silences you can imagine they proceeded to dismiss him as insufficiently scientific. It was at this point Gordon thought about quitting the field altogether. There were times, he wrote in a letter to his parents, when I absolutely did not see the fulfillment of my purpose ahead. Still, he went through with his dissertation, rushing through it in two years. He entitled it The Social Influence, an experimental study of the effect of the group upon individual mental processes. The basic argument was that every social interaction— Every social relation, were his exact words, featured two potential dimensions of conflict, personality and group. People could find themselves at odds with one because they had different natural dispositions, or because they were members of opposing social factions. It was also during graduate school that Alpert met his future wife, Ada Gould. She was a participant in one of his studies. Gould was a student of psychology herself at Radcliffe and earned a master's degree from Harvard Psychology Laboratory in 1921. 
The relationship was tuned to a common intellectual aesthetic. Alport wrote of Gould that she possessed more than the exquisite indulgence of an epicure. There was the depth of happiness such as Socrates might approve an epicurus envy. Gould wrote in a letter to Alport that, You have taught me the cause of mankind. You have taught me the glories of the enchanted islands. You have taught me the secret of life, and hence the nature of God. This kind of sweaty philosophical fervor was a tone commonly assumed in their correspondence. Post-dissertation, Alpert found himself encumbered by life in Cambridge. He hadn't liked who graduate school had turned him into. I hate my Canterburyan personality, he wrote in a letter to a friend from his time at Robert College. My RC personality is my favorite. In 1922, under the guise of professional development, he set sail for Europe. Ada wasn't able to join Gordon for his venture, but she understood the nature of the journey. Ada wished a big wish for me, Alport wrote on the day of his departure, namely that in Europe I should return to my idealism, which was quashed out by two trying years in Cambridge. His destination was the University of Berlin. Germany is in many ways the birthplace of experimental psychology. The first experimental psychology lab was Willem Wundt's in Leipzig. It represented the collision of Germany's physiological laboratories and Britain's empiricist philosophy that spawned modern psychology. But by the early 1920s, Germany's universities were no longer the vanguard. For Alpert, his trip there was a sort of pilgrimage, more for connecting with his discipline's spiritual roots than for honing his skills on the cutting edge. He was moved by the opportunity to commune with the great men of this tradition who were still around. Wolfgang Kohler, Karl Strumpf, Max Wertheimer, and Herr Professor Dr. von So-and-so, as Alpert called the rest of them. But by this point, they were more figures of legend than incisive fonts of contemporary scholarship. I have not delved too heavily into German psychology, Alpert wrote in December 1922. Operas. Plays, excursions, friendships, and more than a little gentle philandering complete my enjoyable schedule of pursuits. He later described this period as a second intellectual dawn, a more profound exercise in the habits of an open mind than his graduate studies at Harvard. Nothing, it seems, revitalizes one's idealism like a little gentle philandering. One scholar did have a lasting impact on Alpert, a Hamburg-based psychologist named William Stern. Stern was a prominent figure in German psychology, and had published a book, Personed und Sach, which sought to return the study of individuality to the fore of the field. It was, at least, an aim which Alpert could get behind. In his thesis, Alpert had criticized Stern for not distinguishing between descriptive and prescriptive aspects of personality, for conflating the psychological facts of personality with the moral ideal of character. Stern was quick to counter this assertion when they first met. Full appreciation of psychology, he argued, was only possible through understanding of philosophy. Alpert was initially taken aback by the flagrant unscientificness of the rebuttal, but it was under Stern's philosophically-minded tutelage that Alpert regained his sense of what the full scope of psychology could entail. In 1923, Alpert wrote to Gould of a revelation that occurred to him during a summer stint working with Stern in Hamburg. He was finally able to put his finger on what had satisfied him about his dissertation. Even if the analysis is perfect, something is lacking. Who would be so inhuman as to identify Miss Penn, another participant in his study, with the one original and only Skook, his pet name for Ada? No, it is the personality itself that is lacking. The problem has worried me muchly, and it is in this sense of inadequacy that has kept me from working out articles from the old thesis. 
The scales fallen from his eyes, Alpert drafted his first paper based on the insight, called The Study of the Undivided Personality, and sent it to the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. Published in 1924, the paper was a criticism of a chapter on personality in a book called Social Psychology, recently published by his brother Floyd. While Gordon felt Floyd's book featured less nonsense than most books on the subject, his time in Germany had afforded him enough critical distance to see the issues in the behaviorist approach to social behavior. Floyd's astoundingly neat system will not suffice, Gordon wrote in correspondence with an old Harvard professor. Floyd was an editor at the journal, but he agreed to publish Gordon's paper nonetheless. You seem to be developing a type of psychology somewhat different from mine, Floyd wrote to Gordon. Though he respected his little brother's effort, Floyd didn't buy the argument. He accused Gordon's new approach to psychology of relying too heavily on gestalt and pretzels, while allowing that is the next best thing to mine. It was not a joke that Gordon took lightly. Floyd just doesn't seem to feel anymore, Gordon wrote in 1923. He writes to me as he would to an unknown prof in some distant dinky college. I truly do not care if I never see my brothers and sisters-in-law again. In 1922, for reasons that appear never to have been fully disclosed, Floyd had left for a position at the University of North Carolina. He never returned to Harvard. Before returning to the U.S., Alpert spent a year in Cambridge, England. Then, in 1924, he won an appointment as an instructor at Harvard's Department of Social Ethics. I have felt pretty low about leaving Europe and returning to heavens knows what, he wrote to a friend about his return to Harvard. Alpert described his research program as one that would draw from individual psych, social psych, and psychoanalysis all the data available concerning individual differences in ability, personality, mental, and characteral types, and the reaction of the individual in the group. Floyd was not considered for the Harvard position. Neither was he thrilled by the news that it had been offered to Gordon. On June 20, 1925, Gordon and Adam married. In autumn of the next year, Alport took a post at Dartmouth in search of a more leisurely pace of existence. Never able to settle fully, yet incapable of remaining away, the Alparts returned to Harvard in September of 1929, this time for good. They'd found the leisure they'd been looking for in New Hampshire, but ultimately the pair yearned for the thrum of cosmopolitanism. In a journal entry, Alport recorded that, I miss the eccentrics, deviates, and Jews which spice the student body at Harvard. It is a sentiment which no doubt has occurred to many Harvard students through the years, though rarely has it been located with so few words. Edward Boring, the chair of the psychology department, was initially rather keen to get Alpert back to Cambridge. He liked that Alpert seemed to have all the drive and none of the ego, a rare combination of traits to find in someone wandering the Harvard yard. Boring felt that Gordon might be the final piece of turning the psychology faculty into a, quote, real department. But Boring's vision never quite panned out. It was over the following decade or so that the department would ossify into the separate camps of sociotropes and biotropes. They represented two distinct visions about what psychology ought to study and how it ought to study it. The biotropes followed in the behaviorist tradition established by John Watson. The BMOC was now B.F. Skinner, the preeminent psychologist of mid-20th century America. The behaviorist experimental method now dominated the field, with its unassailable air of scientific rigor. Alpert's sociotropes, meanwhile, had less stable footing. They wanted to say something closer to what Freud had said, but with a more respectable way of arriving at their point. It took them a while to figure out how to do this. Psychology at the time was dominated by two disparate poles, behaviorist experimentalism and Freudian analysis. Alpert wanted to draw on them both, 
and it was at the intersection of these two contradictory, and in both cases rather overdramatically stated, philosophies that modern psychology began to take shape. One of the most widely discussed books in academic circles during the Cold War was C.P. Snow's The Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution, published in 1959. Snow was both a chemist and a novelist. In the book, he introduces his credentials as having spent his days working among scientists and his nights cavorting with literary types. The impetus for the book was Snow's observation that he seemed to be the only one splitting his time between the two groups. I believe the intellectual life of the whole of Western society is increasingly being split into two polar groups," wrote Snow. At one pole we have the literary intellectuals, who incidentally, while no one was looking, took to referring to themselves as intellectuals as though there were no others. At the other, scientists, and as the most representative, the physical scientists. Between the two, a gulf of mutual incomprehension, sometimes, particularly among the young, hostility and dislike but most of all, a lack of understanding. Though he identified with both cultures, Snow didn't look on them even-handedly. The book's title makes no mention of a literary revolution. This is because, as Snow argues, the literary culture is the traditional culture, taking stock of society's already existing cultural produce, whereas scientists have the future in their bones. Yet both sides are equally ignorant of what the other side is up to. Snow cites a study of scientists' reading habits showing that few of them have any substantial knowledge of literary works. Most of the rest, when one tried to probe for what book they had read, would modestly confess, well, I've tried a bit of Dickens, rather as though Dickens were an extraordinarily esoteric, tangled, and dubiously rewarding writer, something like Rainer Maria Rilke. Meanwhile, most humanists couldn't recite the second law of thermodynamics or even define mass. One diagnosis Snow makes is disciplinary specialization or at least specialization that happens prematurely. Here, he points the finger at England, one of the earliest specializing countries in the world. In English secondary education, by the time a student hits 16, she is already narrowing down her studies to a few key topics. Students go into undergraduate with a monogamous commitment to a field of study, earning a bachelor's degree in only three years and skipping over the general education requirements found in American universities. How can we expect students to respect the diversity of knowledge production if we aren't teaching them from a broad disciplinary spectrum? What Snow elides in addressing this problem is that it is actually two problems. One is social, the other epistemological. Snow frames the divide only as a social problem. Scientists and humanists have self-segregated into two disconnected groups. Each has their own values, as well as their own language for discussing them. But just because the problem is discussable in social terms doesn't make it exclusively a social problem. The epistemological issue is whether these two camps in some real sense represent fundamentally different ways of going about the business of creating knowledge. To the extent that they are incommensurable, perhaps it makes sense to keep them apart. They are separate enterprises and we wouldn't expect their practitioners to intermingle just as we don't expect to see politicians and fashion designers discussing matters of trade over dinner. Snow trained his eye on comparing the intellectual cultures of the interwar period with the pre-modern period. He had in mind mainly natural scientists and writers of literary fiction, which were his own areas of expertise. He didn't look favorably upon the literature of the modern era. Any writer from T.S. Eliot on to Snow fell into the category of dubiously rewarding. But this divide wasn't the only way of framing the two cultures problem during this period. 
as divided as any two camps in the academy of the first half of the 20th century were the poles of thought and psychology, the Freudians and the behaviorists. That the word Freud denotes a body of thought as much as a singular man speaks to his influence, as well as to Freud's ability to architect a cult of personality with himself at the center. As the poet W.H. Auden wrote in tribute to Freud upon his death in 1939, if often he was wrong and at times absurd, to us he is no more a person now but a whole climate of opinion. Sigmund Freud was a polemical figure. You were either a disciple or a detractor. Freud didn't want it any other way. In Freud's own telling of the history of psychoanalysis, one begins to feel as though the protagonist, Freud himself, is a previous incarnation of Donald Trump, relying on a similar set of rhetorical stratagems to move through life as a 19th century Viennese neurologist. In every instance, he is simultaneously the hero and the victim. He is triumphant in all his actions, yet vilified by mainstream opinion. He bears the burden of persecution, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the movement. His is a regime without peer on either side of history, and he recognizes only three categories of people, those on his side, those against him, and those who don't exist. For instance, Freud believed that it is the inevitable fate of psychoanalysis to arouse opposition and to embitter people, which in turn inspired the conclusion that I must surely be the originator of all that characterized psychoanalysis. Even in full context, the logical connection of the statements hangs only by a thread. Another choice line of pomposity is when Freud claimed, of his own argument, this argument has by no means received the serious consideration it deserved, for if it had, there would have been no arguments. Though Freud recounts his discovery of psychoanalysis as a eureka-inflected moment of personal insight, it was in many ways a response to the neurological program developed by Jean-Martin Charcot, a Frenchman widely considered to be the founder of modern neurology. In the 19th century, neurologists were in possession of one essential fact, with all other insights derived from profligate speculation. That fact was that the psyche, the mind, the spirit, the source of behavior, whatever one is inclined to call it, has a biological basis, specifically the brain. When presented with a tricky case of pathological behavior, they could safely locate the source of the problem between the patient's ears. Beyond that was anyone's guess. The neurological basis of the psyche entails two separate points. The brain shapes behavior, and behavior shapes the brain. Like most of his contemporaries, Charcot was mostly concerned with the first point. There was one main exception, hypnosis. This was something Charcot had pioneered and practiced, an introduction of new psychological variables in hopes of causing neurological changes, and that Freud was able to observe when he studied under Charcot in autumn of 1885. Part of Charcot's claim as a founding father comes from the many influential students he taught. Another was William James. The psychoanalytic program of Freud took this second point to its extreme. Having established his own practice back in Vienna, Freud soon realized that hypnosis was unnecessary. All you needed to do was get the patient talking, free association. Psychoanalysis was his technique for making sense of whatever the patient produced on their linguistic walkabout. Freud's psychoanalysis had an impact far beyond psychiatry and even psychology, but as far as the behavioral sciences are concerned, Freud introduced two major innovations. The first was an innovation of content. This was his characterizing of the unconscious. It featured early on in his psychoanalytic writings. The theory of repression, wrote Freud, is the pillar upon which the edifice of psychoanalysis rests. 
The notion of repression implies psychic depth. Where do repressed images and experiences go, if not some subterranean reservoir of mental activity? Freud did not invent the unconscious. For instance, Eduard von Hartmann wrote a treatise entitled The Philosophy of the Unconscious in 1869, which Freud had read as a young man. His contribution was to attribute to the unconscious a position of influence in the mind no one else had quite appreciated. The conscious mind, that is, the part to which we have direct introspective access, is a subjugated parcel of the untamed wilderness that is the unconscious. The culmination of this was his three-layered theory of id, ego, and superego. The middle layer is ego, the part of you that can readily be identified as you. Below that is id, a layer of instincts and impulses, the habits and desires that propel us through the current of daily life. The top layer is superego, your higher moral faculties, the part of you that seeks to abide by conventional mores, your conscience. There's a lot going on in those outside layers. Freud's other, and probably more important, innovation was methodological. This is the analysis part of psychoanalysis. Freud turned investigation of the mind from an experimental science into what was essentially a literary enterprise. This turned out to be something of a move towards liberation. For the price that is paid for experimental rigor is a limit on what can be rigorously studied. There is a natural trade-off between an experiment's rigor, internal validity as it's called in psychology, and how well that experiment describes something in the real world, external validity. The cleaner the experimental setup, the less likely the behavior is to resemble something humans do in their natural habitat. Psychoanalysis offered a way of talking about a much wider range of phenomena than the experimental method allowed. Freud discussed the nature of, among much else, dreams, wit, sexuality, culture, myth, psychosis, and conversational language. The crux of Freud's insight was that one could read a dream, or a behavioral tick, or a malapropism, like one might read a book. It could be deconstructed in terms of its symbolic motifs, analyzed, and reconstructed to reflect the formative experiences of the author. Freud approached the mind less like a set of laws to be codified in an equation, and more like a novel to be scrutinized for meaning. This was the MO Freud established in The Interpretation of Dreams, published in German in 1899. The structure of each passage is, Freud presents a dream sequence, either his own or a patient's. The dream is broken down into its component images. Connections are drawn from those components to events from real life. Then Freud fits together the puzzle of what the dream means. The goal is to put the dream sequence in relation to the events in such a way as to reveal feelings of the patient which may not otherwise be available to them. The dream is the perfect vehicle for this process because it's all imagery. It is the mind's natural form of free association, of wandering around with no particular destination. And because the dreamer doesn't exert conscious control over the imagery of her dreams, it is the perfect place to find the kinds of things your superego might not want you to see. For a time, Freud did actually conduct a series of experiments based on psychoanalysis. They were done in collaboration with Willem Wundt, the founder of the first laboratory for experimental psychology. Wundt's experiments were especially amenable to testing psychoanalytic theories because they were based on introspection. Wundt would train his subjects, sometimes for hundreds of hours, to systematically inspect the contents of their own thoughts. But Freud viewed these experiments as superfluous. They could only support what he had already worked out via psychoanalytic techniques. Freud first came to America in 1909 at the invitation of G. Stanley Hall, then president of Clark University. The introduction of psychoanalysis into North America, 
as Freud saw it, took place under particularly glorious auspices. Namely, the auspices Freud had in mind was his presentation of himself to a crowd of potential American disciples. He recounted the day by praising his attaches, followers in attendance. This included Carl Jung, the other major figure invited by Hall and a collaborator of Freud's at the time, as well as A.A. Brill, Freud's obsequious underling and the main translator of his work into English. Denigrating his detractors, making exceptions for their fleeting moments of clarity during which they acted in accord with Freud's own views, and failing to mention everyone else. This last category included William James, who didn't take a particularly strong stance on Freud's work, but was nevertheless the most influential psychologist in America at the time. James died the following year. James's death opened a rift in American psychology. As the central figure of American psychology, James had set up a philosophy, but not a program of research. His foundational text was his 1890 Principles of Psychology, and it was just that, principles. It was full of brilliant observation and insight, but did not make immediately obvious what everyone was supposed to do in James's absence. And though Freud began to enjoy greater and greater influence in America, the group to pick up the slack was not the Freudians, it was the behaviorists. In a way, behaviorism was also intended as a means of addressing the important phenomena that lay outside of conscious awareness. Psychology as the behaviorist views it, wrote John B. Watson in a 1913 manifesto of that title, is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. Its theoretical goal is the prediction and control of behavior. Introspection forms no essential part of its methods, nor is the scientific value of its data dependent on the readiness with which they lend themselves to interpretation in terms of consciousness. This way of seeing things was presented as an alternative to psychology as everyone else viewed it, as the science of the phenomena of consciousness. As Watson described this position, the purview of psychology was any mental state that could be inspected by the person it belonged to. Any effect that could not be readily observed in one's own mind was outside the psychologist's jurisdiction. The epicenter of this school of thought was William James's approach to studying the stream of consciousness. Specifically, his contemporaries referred to this approach as functionalism, as the goal was not just to label the contents of consciousness, but to say what it is they were doing there. A key insight of Watson's was the connection with animal behavior. If psychology consists of only the things drifting through the stream of consciousness, and we cannot directly observe the mental states of animals, then we must admit there is no psychology of animals. Clearly, this is absurd. There is something going on in the mind of, say, a dog that counts as mentality. It seems reasonably clear that some kind of compromise must be affected, as Watson wrote. Either psychology must change its viewpoint so as to take in facts of behavior, whether or not they have bearings upon the problems of consciousness, or else behavior must stand alone as a wholly separate and independent science. What puts the mind of animals and human on the same playing field? It is an introspection, but observable behavior. Whereas Freud addressed the limits of conscious states by delving into further caverns of the mind, the behaviorist dealt with consciousness by discarding it altogether. Watson believed that consciousness was a distraction, that psychologists could continue to study it for the next 200 years and never get clear on anything that really matters. As long as it continued to take conscious states as its primary object of study, psychology would never become a natural science. The time seems to have come when psychology must discard all reference to consciousness, when it need no longer delude itself into thinking that it is making mental states the object of observation. Instead, the object was behavior itself, which could be understood as a complicated dance between stimulus and response. In a system of psychology completely worked out, wrote Watson, given the response, the stimuli can be predicted, 
Given the stimuli, the response can be predicted. What we need to do is start work upon psychology, making behavior, not consciousness, the objective point of our attack. Watson's manifesto struck a chord, and behaviorism became the dominant paradigm in American psychology, in some ways American social science as a whole, from the 1920s through the 1950s. For the most part, Watson's behaviorism really did deliver on its promises of unity, progress, and scientific rigor. But it was an approach that could also be more than a little unfeeling. One famous experiment of Watson's was the Kerplunk experiment, so-called because he would train rats to run at full speed down a corridor, thereby establishing a habit. Then, unbeknownst to the rat, he would truncate the corridor, which the rats would continue to scamper down before discovering the presence of a new wall with an enthusiastic Kerplunk. Another was the Little Albert experiment, in which Watson and his graduate student, Rosalie Rayner, later his wife, replicated a procedure originally developed by Ivan Pavlov for use in dogs, in a nine-month-old human infant. The experimenters presented the child, Albert, with a rat to which he initially showed neither special fondness nor dislike. Whenever the child reached down to pet the rat, the experimenter struck a gong loud enough to upset poor little Albert. The experimental finding was that, eventually, the child ended up not being so keen on the rat. It was a criticism of behaviorism that extended beyond the lab, too. John Watson's son, James B. Watson, gave a not overly fond account of his father in an interview several years after John's death. A defining aspect of his upbringing was a lack of physical affection. Neither him nor his brother remembered ever having been kissed or held by their parents. When I went to bed at night, I recall shaking hands with my parents or with any other guests who happened to be in the house. I never tried, nor did my brother Billy, to ever get close to our parents physically because we both knew it was taboo. The culmination of the account is that eventually James' brother, Bill, by then a practicing psychiatrist, took his own life. James said of his brother's suicide, I admit that happens to a lot of people who are not raised by behaviorists, but I strongly believe that the strict adherence to the principles established in behaviorism, particularly as advocated in some of Dad's earlier books, tend to erode the fundamental development of the child's ego strength and to cause a great difficulty in later life. Tragically, that's the antithesis of what Dad expected from practicing these philosophies. And so, in Snow's sense, behaviorism and Freudianism really did make up two entirely different cultures. They represented two separate strategies for the acquisition of knowledge. These strategies resulted in two distinct sets of insights and excesses. And while pretty much everyone could acknowledge their influence in name, most scholars tended to gain intimate familiarity with only one or the other. It takes a rare person to have one foot fully enough in each of two cultures to meaningfully contribute to both, or better yet, to synthesize them. But by the time the Department of Social Relations was established, Gordon Alpert was coming into his own as just such a person. Part 3 Gordon Alpert was the progenitor of two major subfields of psychological research. The first was summarized in his 1937 text, Personality, a Psychological Interpretation. In 1951, a survey of his colleagues ranked Alpert as the second most influential figure in personality psychology. The first was Freud. The second subfield was intergroup psychology, the analysis of human interactions as a function of social group. While today these seem like obviously different fields of inquiry, one's personality is not determined by social group, one's social group is not determined by personality, during the early years of the field they seemed much harder to disentangle. The book that did the most to establish this connection in the American public discourse was a text by a group of sociologists at Berkeley called The Authoritarian Personality. 
Published in 1950 and weighing in at just under a thousand pages, the project of the authoritarian personality was to locate fascist tendencies within a set of dispositional characteristics. The lead author of the text was Theodor Adorno, a prominent member of a certain brand of leftist intellectual influenced by Freud and Marx called the Frankfurt School. The study was built around extensive interviews and tests of over 2,000 Americans. The finding that most directly captured the imagination of the public was the F-scale, a single number that could indicate an individual's susceptibility to fascism. A person's F-quotient, as assessed by a battery of questionnaires and other tests, was the culmination of traits such as adherence to conventional values, submission to in-group authority figures, aggression towards those who violate conventional values, and a preference for tough leaders. All of this made for a kind of composite sketch of what authoritarian, anti-democratic person would look like. According to this line of argument, the link between personality and social group is prejudice. When two individuals from different social groups interact, there is an opportunity for prejudice. Whether or not the opportunity is taken is determined by the acting individual's personality. This was another key claim that Adorno and his colleagues made, that ethnocentrism was highly correlated with authoritarianism. Authoritarians were likely to value their in-group members much more than their out-group members. A more democratically-minded individual, on the other hand, would subscribe to a more tolerant way of seeing things. Even if she wasn't especially fond of members of an outgroup, she would at least let them do their own thing. Overall, the authoritarian personality was a poor piece of social science. One sociologist writing on the 50th anniversary of, of its publication claimed that it is probably the most deeply flawed work of prominence in political psychology, but it spoke to a certain moment. The book provided a scientific-seeming exhibition that resonated with two important Cold War values. One, democracy good, fascism bad, and two, social science as political technology. The F-score was a scientifically validated way of separating the good guys from the bad guys. Another useful way of defining the authoritarian personality might have been as the inverse of Gordon Alpert. Had Alpert been a participant in Adorno's study, he would have likely received about as low of an S-score as it's possible to get. He didn't have an authoritarian bone in his body. This is something noted by pretty much all of his students. He afforded them a great deal of room for dissent, trusting them with the opportunity to continue down lines of inquiry that he didn't yet see the value in himself. Which is not to say he was overly laissez-faire. He looked over all his students' work with a critical eye. Remembering his mentor's style of revision, Thomas Pettigrew, an eminent social psychologist in his own right, claims still to quake at the sight of the one-word dictum into which Alpert packed all his editorial insights. Scribbled in the margins, it meant the entire paragraph needed work. Recast. Alpert also had a way of being charmingly credulous in a manner no authoritarian could countenance. For example, there was a large patch of blueberry bushes by his summer home in Lincolnville, Maine, which every year would go unharvested. One year, he employed a nearby farmer to harvest and sell the crop on his behalf. At the end of the summer, the farmer delivered the balance sheet to Gordon. Revenue from blueberry sales, $300. Cost of farmhand labor, $500. Not letting those blueberries go to waste? Priceless. It was because of this particular bit of business savvy that Gordon's colleague at Harvard, Sam Stouffer, crowned him the Blueberry King. The reign of the Blueberry King was marked by intense cosmopolitanism. He took other people's way of living and seeing things very seriously. Once, when invited to give the Hornle Lecture at South Africa's Stellenbosch University in 1956, he prepared by studying Afrikaans for six months prior to the date. 
he proceeded to deliver the opening of his address in exquisite Afrikaans, apologizing for his inability to deliver the entire lecture in the local tongue. The South Africans were more than a little bit pleased with this, given that many of their own countrymen didn't even speak the language. This linguistic affinity was something Alpert liked to indulge, too. Alpert was conversationally fluent in modern Greek, and he took a great deal of joy in rattling off dishes, soon to be conveyed for his friend's gustatory enjoyment when dining at Greek restaurants. Alpert maintained in an autobiographical essay that the greatest honor of his career was a bound volume of work by his students, with a dedication to Gordon from his students, in appreciation of his respect for their individuality. It was on the same evening that his students went around to give accounts of the ways Alpert had impacted their lives. Mostly, the Americans were grateful for his guidance as a mentor during their doctoral studies. Then the Europeans began to speak. You thank him for your theses, said one woman, but I thank him for my life. This was followed by story after story of how Alpert had helped students and colleagues escape Nazi Germany and settle in the United States. One example was William Sturm, who had influenced Alpert so much during that summer in Leipzig. Alpert procured a job for him in 1934 at Duke. Until that moment, Alpert hadn't mentioned this service as a one-man refugee operation to any of his American colleagues. In winter of 1944, Alpert began co-teaching a seminar, the other instructor was Talcott Parsons, called Sociology 32. Two years later, after the Department of Social Relations was founded, it became Social Relations 284, a graduate seminar on prejudice and group conflict. The course drew on a wide selection of sources, not only scholarly works, but also works of literature and interviews with people in the local community. Some of the scholarship was Alpert and Parsons' own. Others were prominent works of the time, such as the authoritarian personality. The literary works included E.M. Forrester's 1924 Passage to India, Richard Wright's 1945 Black Boy, and Alan Patton's 1948 Cry the Beloved Country. Students also drew on their own experiences and the experiences of those around them. They had the opportunity to conduct six to eight hour interviews, similar to the ones Adorno's researchers did, of individuals in the Cambridge and Boston area about their experiences of prejudice. They also made extensive analysis of their personal experience. Various prompts included my personal experience with racial, religious, class attitudes, formative influences on my attitudes towards minority groups, and my attitudes towards ethnic groups, with Alpert's elaboration that one method for a study of complex subject of prejudice is conscious report based on personal experience. Even though no one knows all of the factors entering into the formation of his attitudes, he does know a large number of them and also knows how it feels to have prejudice and to be the object of other people's prejudices. The class had a democratic ethos, with Alpert's employment of what he called committees. They were essentially group projects. Each assignment was given to a cohort of two to four students who would submit a joint report and deliver a presentation. Pettigrew, remembering the course years later, also recalled that women and minorities were always overrepresented in all of Gordon's classes. He was sympathetic to ear to their concerns in a very white, Brahmin-dominated male atmosphere of Harvard in that period, and 284 was virtually the only game in town on prejudice. The course materials developed over a decade of teaching social relations 284 became Gordon Alpert's longest-lasting contribution to psychology, The Nature of Prejudice. Originally published in 1954, the book did not sell well initially. Four years later, a version of the text, abridged by 40%, came out in paperback and sales took off. It was arguably the first popularized work of academic psychology. 
The impetus of the book for Alport was technology. He wrote in the preface that rivalries and hatreds between groups are nothing new. What is new is the fact that technology has brought these, these groups too close together for comfort. Russia is no longer a distant land of the steppes. It is over here. The United States is no longer remote from the old world. It is over there, with its economic aid, movies, Coca-Cola, and political influence. He felt that if technological engineering could bring these previously disparate groups closer together, it would take a feat of psychological engineering to get them to cooperate. Quote, Civilized men have gained notable mastery over energy, matter, and inanimate nature generally, and are rapidly learning to control physical suffering and premature death. But, by contrast, we appear to be living in the Stone Age so far as our handling of human relationship is concerned. Our deficit in social knowledge seems to void every step of our progress in physical knowledge. The surplus in wealth accumulating to the human race through the applied natural science is virtually cancelled by the cost of armaments and war. Gains in medical science are widely negated by the poverty that results from wars and from trade barriers erected largely by hatred and fear. From the book's publication through the end of his career, Alpert maintained that its most significant contribution was the table of contents. It took him years to decide on which topics were truly relevant to a psychology of intergroup prejudice. I have tried to offer a framework into which future developments may readily fit, he wrote in the preface. And that's pretty much what he did. A number of publications have been organized in the intervening years, which report the field's state of the art on the conceptual scheme Alpert laid out. One of his biggest insights was that prejudice wasn't the product of a prejudiced personality. Prejudice was a natural extension of basic cognitive processes. The basic logic is the same one followed by social psychologists today. Humans instinctively carve the world up into categories. This includes the social categories of us and them, of in-group and out-group. Whether through stereotyping, group competition, or the intrinsic desire to see one's self on the side of the angels, intergroup conflict and prejudice is guaranteed to arise. Ten of the book's 31 chapters focused on cognitive factors, only two focused on personality. The nature of prejudice, then, lay not in the unsavory dispositions of a few intolerant individuals, but as a basic function of the human mind. The book's other major theoretical contribution was Alpert's proposed remedy to prejudicial thinking, intergroup contact. Alpert's theory of intergroup contact was that the most effective way to mitigate prejudice was to get members of one group to spend time with the members of another, but only under certain conditions. Those conditions were equal status, common goals, absence of competition, and support from institutional authority. If any of these conditions remains unmet, familiarity is more likely to breed contempt. This also turned out to be more or less spot on, as future work such as that by Tom Pettigrew would show. The examples of prejudice on which Alpert draws throughout the book are mainly prejudices against African Americans, Jews, Catholics, and women. A point worth mentioning about the book, Alpert certainly thought so, as did many of his colleagues, is that these were examples geared primarily for disabusing members of Alpert's own in-group, WASPs essentially, of their own prejudices. By the mid-1950s, prejudice was a topic that white men were starting to take seriously. They didn't have a choice. The most significant milestone on this front in 1954, by a long shot, was not the publication of Alpert's book, but the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka. The court's initial decision, handed down on May 17, 1954, found that racial segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. A second decision, given in 1955, 
ordered that desegregation take place with all deliberate speed. In part, this was an overturning of the separate but equal doctrine established by the court's 1896 ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson. An argument that bolstered this doctrine was the strain of scientifically backed racism that was a mainstream belief in America at the time. Toward the end of the opinion in Brown, written by Chief Justice Earl Warren and supported unanimously by the other justices, the court stated that, whatever may have been the extent of psychological knowledge at the time of Plessy v. Ferguson, this finding, that segregation of white and colored children in public schools has a detrimental effect upon the colored children, is amply supported by modern authority. Any language in Plessy v. Ferguson contrary to this finding is rejected. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. What the relevant footnote in the decision made reference to was the modern authority of recent work in the social sciences. Alpert's nature of prejudice was not among those explicitly mentioned, nor was Alpert one of the expert witnesses to give testimony during the case. But he was a member of a committee, put together by the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues, which was crucial for the argument of the Brown case. In the final version of the statement of the SPSSI committee given to the court, two points were made. Segregation had negative impacts on both racial groups, and that quick and effective desegregation was by all means possible. Both of these were points Alpert took seriously. In a meeting on the problem of desegregation, held several months after the court's initial ruling, Alpert disseminated a written statement that a firm stand should be taken so as to brook no pussyfooting, unnecessary delays, or skulldudgery. Gradual solutions must be avoided because, as the conference members claimed, they are predicated on the assumption that attitudinal changes must precede social changes. There is no evidence to support the contention that public education and attitudinal preparation for acceptance of desegregation in themselves increased the chances of effective desegregation. The consensus of this conference became the social science memo, providing social scientific evidence in favor of speedy desegregation, which in one form or another played a role in the court's 1955 ruling. There's an argument to be made that making it into footnote 11 of Chief Justice Warren's opinion in Brown, as well as lending empirical support to the claim that desegregation was something that should happen sooner rather than later, was the high watermark of social science's contribution to society in the 20th century. The connection between the unfolding legislation of desegregation and the theory of intergroup contact was not lost on Alpert. He spelled it out in chapter 30 of his book. The argument for civil rights legislation rests on the fact that it can change the sociocultural structure in the direction of improving opportunities for equal status contact in the pursuit of common interests. For example, by outlawing restrictive covenants, the Supreme Court makes it somewhat easier for Negroes to disperse themselves in a community and thus avoid the high congestion that leads to the perception of threat. In the same way, all anti-discrimination legislation helps to dissolve the barriers that segregation imposes and frees the forces of equal status contact so that they may operate to reduce prejudice and tension. Social science tells us that if we wish to reduce prejudice in our society, attacks on segregation, legislative or otherwise, are scientifically sound and of high priority. More generally, Alpert drew on social and cultural insights to construct his overarching vision of personality. Alpert believed one's personality could not be fully described without also giving an account of the social structure into which that personality is embedded. And in pursuing this line of thought, 
he ended up much more concerned with social phenomena than he might have initially anticipated. Part 4. How should a life history be written? This was in many ways the refrain of Alpert's career. The question kept coming up because it was the one problem he could never seem to make any progress on. In an autobiographical essay published in 1967, the year of Alpert's death, he called this his perennial question. Alpert framed the problem as a tension between two poles, what he called the nomothetic and the ideographic. He got the terms from his days as a young man studying in Germany, but they represented ideas that were broadly familiar. Nomothetic approaches describe things in general. In terms of C.P. Snow's two cultures, this is the way of the scientist. In the field of psychology, the flagship camp of this position was behaviorism. Meanwhile, ideographic approaches describe things in particular. This is the way of the humanist. It is also how Sigmund Freud addressed his questions of interest, through interpretation rather than experimentation. Throughout his career, Alpert maintained that any adequate account of human behavior would have to have a firm grasp of both the nomothetic and the ideographic. The issue for Alpert was that his field had a relatively strong idea of how to do nomothetic techniques, but tended to undervalue the ideographic. He advanced the notion that psychologists ought to do more on the ideographic front on pretty much every occasion which anyone would listen. But he only got around to making a meaningful attempt to do so once, in a book called Letters from Jenny, published in 1965. The book was based on a collection of 301 letters, written by a middle-aged woman named Jenny Gove Masterson. The letters, penned over a period of 20 years, were addressed to two of Jenny's friends, Isabel and her husband Glenn, who had been the college roommate of Jenny's son, Ross. Alpert was drawn to the letters as an account of the concrete details of a life as it played out through the course of living. The letters provided a record of both a story and the protagonist's feelings about it. And in contrast with an explicitly autobiographical memoir, they were delivered without pretense. Alpert thought that, although she herself is a lover of literature, Jenny seems unaware that she possesses literary talent. Her ability to set forth her perceptions and her feelings is fired by hot necessity, unmonitored by self-consciousness. He used the letters in his Harvard courses, claiming that they were the most fruitful material he come across for generating class discussions about the nature of personality. One of the tricks to this endeavor was to interpret an individual's behavior without pathologizing it. Freud had paved the way for an interpretive, that is, ideographic, approach to studying the mind, but he had done it for cases where something was obviously the matter, when the patient presented some form of neuroses. This turns out to be a consistent stumbling block for anyone examining behavior through a hermeneutic lens. It's a lot easier to talk about instances where things have gone wrong rather than run-of-the-mill quotidian activity. Pathological behavior poses the question why much more blatantly than typical behavior. Deviation from the norm calls out for explanation. Adherence to it does not. Another thing that made the project tricky was overlaying the abstract principles of personality psychology onto the lived experience of an individual life. Psychologists are on safe ground, wrote Alpert, so long as they can talk in abstractions about personality in general. Their real test comes when they attempt to explain, or guide, or therapeutically treat a single concrete life. The letters detail 20 years worth of Jenny's life problems. A representative instance is when she falls out with her son's fiancé, which caused her to fall out with her son. She has trouble holding down relationships with non-family for any long period of time, except for Isabel and Glenn, who, crucially, live in a different state and communicate with Jenny almost exclusively through written correspondence. 
The meat of the book comes from Jenny's letters, which have been abridged. To this is added a brief preface, as well as an analysis of their contents, first in an informal perspective from Isabel, who engaged with them over the course of their composition. In the final quarter of the book, Alpert gives his own analysis. But the odd thing about Alpert's analysis is it's not really his analysis. He begins his section with a kind of apology, inspired by a felt need to explain his audacity in having undertaken the endeavor of explaining this woman's personality in the first place. He gives accounts from three different schools of thought about what an expert trained in such a perspective would say if she had in fact studied the letters. It's less an explanation, more a series of hypotheticals. The perspectives Alpert offers are what he calls the existential approach, more or less a close reading of the letters, what did the author intend when she wrote a given line, the depth approach, that is, psychoanalysis, what can these letters tell us about what's going on below the surface of consciousness, and the structural dynamic approach, the closest to Alpert's own academic work, how can Jenny be fit into mainstream psychological boxes like personality traits. At no point does Alpert seem convinced by any of his own hypothetical explanations. For that matter, he doesn't even seem convinced that psychology can say much of anything at all about an individual life. He takes as a baseline the natural disposition towards what he calls humanism, essentially whatever it is that people are doing when they read a good novel. A humanist, by which we mean the average reader, has the faculty of putting himself under the skin, in the heart, and in the muscles of another, and of reacting in his mind as the other would, can we improve on humanism, the art of empathy. He sets his own endeavor against the ideographic gold standard, literature. What exactly can psychology do that literature can't? Literature, more informally storytelling, is the discipline that has longest had its finger on the pulse of human experience. It is also the one that is most comfortable dealing with humans ideographically, whereas psychology as a field is much more at ease dealing with humans in the abstract, if you get 100 people to follow a given procedure, the psychologist can figure out how the majority of them will tend to behave on average. Psychology talks about human experience in general. It is only literature that talks about the experiences of specific humans. Throughout the ages, the riddle of individuality has been explored by the giants of literature, wrote Alpert. Tardily, the psychologist arrives on the scene, someone has said, 2,000 years too late. He adds that, when psychology deals with human personality, it says only what literature has always said, but says it less artfully. And yet, for all his embarrassment about the limits of psychology, Alpert exhibits a more or less complete naivete about anything not immediately psychological. He seems to believe a one-to-one -one mapping can be made from the contents of the letters to the contents of Jenny's mind. There is no comparison with contemporaries of similar background, no account of wider events taking place in the world no analysis of Jenny's cultural inheritance. He admits up front that psychologists are 2,000 years too late, but at no point tries on any perspective not overtly psychological. What he fails to grasp is that sometimes, in fact usually, the best way to understand a person is not to look directly at the person, but at their context. Yet misunderstanding was probably not the main cause of Alpert's falling short of the goal he set himself. The greater cause is that he was attempting to do a legitimately hard thing. The simple truth is that two authentic methods exist for the study of human personality, one in literature, the other in the science of psychology. A student of human character does well to follow both pathways. Straddling this line was not just a problem for Alpert, it was the core of the social relations endeavor. Another way to frame this problem is that while there may be two distinct intellectual cultures, there are three distinct goals. 
The two cultures are the sciences and the humanities. The goal of the former is to describe the way things are. The goal of the latter is to describe what things mean. The third goal is to describe how people behave, and it requires a mix of both approaches, the nomothetic and the ideographic. The problem faced by Alpert, and pretty much everyone in social relations generally, was how to make statements about what things mean that would impress people interested in the way things are. This was the tension between the professional and the scholarly aims of psychology. It wants to be a science. It doesn't always study things that are happy to sit still for scientific inquiry. The same was true of every area within the Department of Social Relations. Alpart concludes his analysis in Letters from Jenny with the disclosure that no psychologist has a completely convincing answer to the riddle. Why does Jenny, why do many of us, persist in self-defeating conduct, no matter how many times we are punished for it? In extreme cases, Jenny's included, we label the tendency neurotic, but a label does not explain. Personally, I think Alpert sensed the flimsiness of his enterprise, that after so many years of classroom discussion, he was no closer to being able to put together a satisfying account of Jenny's personality based on her letters than he was after first reading them. Despite his keen desire, he could never quite put his finger on how to do it. If he had, maybe he would have been better equipped to make sense of the behavior of those in his more immediate vicinity, for example, Harry Murray. In his own autobiographical writings, Alpert motivates his professional life with Henri Bergson's concept of a personal idea, that for every intellectually driven individual, there is one underlying idea at the core of their pursuits. What then is my personal idea? I suppose it has to do with the search for a theoretical system, for one that will allow for truth wherever found, one that will encompass the totality of human experience and do full justice to the nature of man. In other words, to give account of the personality system as it is embodied by an individual personality. How should a life history be written? That was my, uh, well, like biographical sketch essay sort of thing on Gordon Alpert. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I've read it, you know, a number of times over now, both in composing it and reading the thing for uh, for, for this show. Uh, but, you know, every time I do, uh, there's there's so much that there uh, in his story that I find uh, that I resonate with and take some comfort in and just think is representative of what's great about psychology. So I hope you felt at least some parts of that and that you enjoyed the way that I told the story. If you did enjoy it and if you got something out of it, please do check out my substack, codycommerce.com. Uh, no, no, that's my website, codycommerce.substack.com. If you get to one, you can pretty easily get to the other. But the point is, is that there'll be lots of other, um, you know, sort of pieces of this nature, both about individual biographies of, of, of psychologists and, and sociologists and anthropologists, that sort of thing, but also about what was happening in these fields more generally in the Department of Social Relations and why these people, Gordon Alpert among them, thought that they could bring together these otherwise separate insights about human behavior and the human experience in psychology, sociology, anthropology, and also why they failed. Why, why is that not a thing today? Why did it splinter back into those constituent disciplines? And so those are the questions that I explore, and they also have a lot to do with the history of cognitive science. In many ways, social relations was a character foil to cognitive science, trying to accomplish the same, you know, sort of general theory of human behavior, what I sort of came to call uh, the theory of everyone, 
uh, but doing it in a completely opposite manner to how cognitive science tried to do it. At any rate, uh, do check that out if that sounds interesting. I really appreciate you listening and uh, check back for more. I will be back with Cognitive Evolution again next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.